Morning, church. Morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Let me add my uh, thanksgiving for the veterans that might be present, or if you have veterans in your family. I'm deeply thankful to have the freedom needed to open God's Word this morning. Let's make the most of our freedoms, right? Hard-earned, hard-fought freedoms by opening God's Word together. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read some portion of that this morning, as well as some portion of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, a play on words, the Hall of Fame. It's a long list of folks who took God at his word. Long list of folks who believed the promises they had received from God and took action on those promises. These folks were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Most, I might go so far as to say all, were deeply, deeply flawed individuals with um, acute demonstrations, painful demonstrations of sinfulness in their lives. In the list, um, a murderer or two that I can think of, uh, adulterers, um, liars. Abraham presented his wife Sarah twice as his sister in order to avoid harm, and he figures prominently in the, last, in the list of the Hall of Faith. So these folks were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We should draw real comfort from that. They made the Hall of Faith. We should also draw challenge from it because they took God at his word. And they acted on the promises they had been given. Here are just a few examples from the Hall of Faith. You should read the chapter later today. Abel believed God would reward obedience and he brought a sacrifice that was accepted. His brother brought one that was not accepted. Cain fell into sin and took his brother Abel's life as a result. Noah believed God's warning of coming judgment, and he built a boat in the desert, a very strange behavior. Abraham believed God's promise that he'd have his own land, and he uprooted from Ur and traveled about a thousand miles north to a new land. Again, a strange behavior certainly in our modern times, but uh, certainly in ancient times. Sarah, his wife, believed God's promise of children, and at the ripe old age of 90, finally gave birth after being barren uh, for 90 years. Moses believed God's call to deliver Israel, and he marched in and told the Pharaoh that he believed. And then he marched out with the children of Israel and stood with his back towards um, some water that he couldn't cross without God's help, and held his staff up, and in faith, right, the waters parted. Israel believed God would fight for them, and they marched around the city of Jericho, and on the seventh day, um, they blew trumpets, and the walls came down. Rahab, a citizen of Jericho, a Canaanite by ethnicity, not an Israelite, she believed God was giving the land to the Israelites. Her life was spared as a result. A hall of faith makes perfect sense in the book of Hebrews, and it's a good reminder for us. It's, it'll be helpful for us today. At least I'm praying as much. But for the original recipients of the letter of Hebrews, it made a lot of sense because they were facing intense persecution. As a result, they were tempted to shrink back from faith, to go back to, to forsake the Messiah, Christ, and go back to Judaism in a traditional sense. To give up their lives of faith as followers of Christ was their temptation. 
In fact, so harsh or hard was what they were facing that the author of Hebrews, at the close of Hebrews 10, kind of lists some of what was in front of them before he goes on to say, take heart, these people lived by faith. And then he gives this roll call of faith in Hebrews 11. Some of what they are facing is on the screen. This is the close of Hebrews 10. It'll be a good context for us. Remember those early days after you had received the light, the light being Christ, after you had trusted in Christ, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were being so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Don't throw away Christ. You'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. Can you imagine these types of hardships? Being publicly insulted, being publicly ridiculed, jailed, having your property confiscated, or worse, watching as loved ones endure those types of persecutions, right? It's, it's one thing to endure that yourself, but imagine watching your loved ones endure that type of hardship. Even if we never face trials of this caliber, this specificity, we will face trials, and we must persevere in faith. Maybe you're persevering in a difficult marriage believing that God honors fidelity. Or maybe you're persevering in the difficulties of singleness, believing that God blesses chastity. Maybe you're persevering in the faith as a parent, parenting difficult situation, or as a child, caring for parents, both believing that God calls us to honor father and mother and that the Lord wants to bless our families. It's Galatians 6.1. Maybe you're persevering as an employee or a student, continuing on in the faith despite difficulty in those situations, believing that God rewards those who live for his honor in his glory in every situation. That's Colossians 3. Faith in Jesus doesn't deliver us from hardship. Rather, it guarantees the strength needed to persevere in hardships. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words... God gives us strength through faith in Christ to face the hardships of this world. In fact, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews notes the promise of Jesus' return by quoting from the Old Testament in verse 37 of chapter 10. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. In other words, hang on. Hang on to your faith. Help is on the way. And notice, he notes for those that continue in faith, those who look forward to the return of Christ, a reward, verse 35, you'll be richly rewarded. Then in verse 36, you'll receive what has been promised. So here's the deal with faith. Faith is certainly a result of, of looking back in time and contemplating what Christ has done for us, right? His miraculous birth, the Christmas season, his sinless life, his moral perfection, his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, his surprising ascension as the disciples looked on. But it's also, that's in the past, it's also a looking forward. It's a both to the certain return of Christ as well. 
Faith is always, to some extent, future-oriented. Which means it's impossible to live for this world, the present moment, in continuing faith. In fact, if your faith is weak this morning, if it's faltering, it might be because you, you're living for the present. It might be because this world is what you've got your focus on rather than on the future and the promised reward that is ours because of what Christ has done. The future reward because of what Christ has done in the past. The certain reward in the future because of his promised return. Make no mistake, we can live in the world. I am a pretty functional part of the community. That was a joke. <laughs> First service I said, I, I'm a functional part of the community. And then I thought, well, I, I'm a pretty functional part of the community. We can live in the world, but we can't live for the world. This, isn't, this world isn't all we have. Praise God, right? Because there's a lot of pain and suffering and difficulty in this world. The Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century, the Hebrews who received this letter, would have been, at the very least, ostracized socially for embracing the Messiah. They would have been kicked out of the temple, prohibited from worshiping, kicked out of the local synagogue. At the very worst, they would have been refused a place of business in the marketplace, unable to earn a living, provide for their families, as well as targeted by Roman authorities as rebellious citizens, those who wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Thus, they would have been accused of having an illegal religion, which would have led to the confiscation of their property, their being jailed. Some of them lost their life for this. But what did the writer of Hebrews offer folks facing this level of persecution? What can we learn about the nature of faith and how we can persevere in the trials that we face? Well, in the middle of Hebrews 11, there's a pause in the list of people and all that they overcame, and the author reflects a little bit about how they got through it. I'm in verse 13, Hebrews chapter 11. He remarks, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They persevered to the end. They kept on believing. They didn't receive the things that were promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. I'm going to drill down on the notion of foreigners and strangers. So if you want to circle those words or underline them, they're underlined in my Bible. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Now, the reason he reflects on the country metaphor is because... Um, Figuring prominently here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're in the Hall of Faith. They had been promised land. Uh, they're a country of their own. They die before that's fulfilled. People who say such things, that they're foreigners and strangers, show that they're looking for a country of the, their own. If they had been thinking of the country, they had left. Abraham had left his homeland to travel to this promised land they would have had the opportunity to return. They could have gone back to Ur, Abraham's hometown. Instead, they lived like this. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jesus himself, speaking with his disciples on the eve of his death, said, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going ahead of you. If it weren't so, he said, I would have told you. In my father's house are many rooms. So he's using this city, this home, this building metaphor to talk about how he's preparing a place for us. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this. Have you, have we admitted we are foreigners and strangers in this world? Or would we say that we are living more as settlers, putting down roots in this world? Faith is future-oriented. Faith is a longing, verse 16, for a better country, a heavenly one. That's the nature of faith in Christ. Faith is believing that God's prepared a place for us and living for the day that we will see that city. Rather than living for, for what we see going on in this world. Suburbanites don't typically like the notion of being foreigners and strangers. Suburbia, if it's about anything, suburbia is about settling down, fitting in, keeping up with the Joneses, falling into the stream, the current of culture, and progressing. Suburbanites don't want to be strange. We don't want to be thought of as weird. The pressure in suburbia is to be normal, to go with the flow. So it can be hard to live a life of faith as suburbanites. Certainly not impossible, but there will be a sense of going against the grain. So let's make sure we understand what makes Christians strangers. Strange. Is it our sexual ethics that make us strange? Is it the desire to dress modestly rather than suggestively? Is it the commitment to remain sexually abstinent before marriage, sexually faithful within marriage, that makes us strange? I'll admit these are certainly strange activities from the world's perspective. These behaviors, though, aren't what actually make us strange. What makes us strange? Is it our generosity? Is it our desire to invest our time and our resources and our treasure in reaching people that we don't know? Is it introducing ourselves? I was at Discount Tire the other day, and this gentleman sat down beside me, and he really wanted to talk. So I closed my laptop. I'm trying to make the most of time. I closed my laptop. I say, all right, Lord, I'll talk to him. And by the end, before we get our tires put on the car, I'm laying hands on him and praying for him right there in the discount tire lobby. <laughs> Folks, that's weird. <laughs> but it's not actually what makes me weird. I'll admit these types of behaviors, wanting to see other people come to faith in Jesus, that's strange. Being evangelistic or being evangelical, going out and saying, come to Christ, that's different. That's going against the grain. It's not actually what makes us strange. Here's my thought on the strangeness of Christians. It's not specific behaviors that make Christians strange, but rather it is faith in God's promises that makes Christians behave strangely. 
Too often Christians think it's their strange behaviors that set them apart from the world. In fact, I've heard many, many sermons growing up in the Bible Belt. I heard many, many stories uh, from the pulpit, and the takeaway was often, you need to be strange. That's how people will know you're Christian. As if our, our simply being strange is the defining element of Christianity. In fact, it is not. Encouraging Christians to be strange is a little bit like encouraging birds to fly. Birds naturally fly because they have wings. Birds fly because they have wings, and Christians are strange because they have faith in God's promises. Similarly, Christians are not those, not simply those that act strange. After all, there are a lot of strange folks in the world, folks that want nothing to do with Christianity. So being strange is actually a fairly low bar. That's not what we're aiming for. Christians instead are those who have faith in God's promises, which makes us strange. Just as birds have wings by which they can fly, Christians are those who have faith in God's promises. And that makes us strange and live in the strange way. This is an important distinction because being generous or modest or chaste or faithful or sober or forgiving isn't what actually makes Christians Christian. Christians certainly do these things as well as, well as many other strange behaviors. But these aren't what make us strange. In fact, there are lots of folks. You can find highly moral folks in the world who disavow Christ. So it can't be strangeness alone that makes us Christian. We must be very, very careful here. We are not Christians because we behave strangely. We behave strangely because of our faith in Christ. Pay close attention. If we make the mistake of believing it's our strange behavior that makes us Christian, then we believe that it is our strange behavior that is saving us. You following me? Heaven forbid we buy into that line of thinking. That is not the gospel. The truth is we're saved by our faith in the strange behavior of one man, Jesus. We're trusting in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return to care for us. Our faith is fixed on him, not on ourselves in our behavior. It's a subtle but vital distinction to draw. This means that having more or less strange behavior isn't what we should be focused on. Our behaviors are an outcome of what we're focused on, the person of Jesus. If being strange were the goal, I, I guess we'd all go be Amish. It's not the goal. The goal is to fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one at work inside us. We're not actually even work in our own lives. He's at work. The goal is to believe in him. And by believing in him, we are changed into the oddest people. 
Too often people here do this and do that in order to be a Christian. But the message of Christ is that God has already done and is continuing to do only what he can do, and that is save humanity through the sacrifice of Christ. Last uh, Wednesday night, I had the privilege of going to speak to some of our high school students here at the church. We're looking for a senior high pastor, and so the high school students um, are getting various staff and volunteers paraded in front of them that, to share with them. It's been a long time since I spoke to high schoolers. Please, high schoolers, no comment to this point. It was, uh, it was, I felt nervous speaking to the high schoolers. I actually started out in youth ministry when I was much younger here at the church, but um, enjoyed speaking with them. I, the focus of the evening, uh, what I was tasked to talk about was the problem of evil, really light topic for a Wednesday night. Uh, and so I started by talking about how other world religions and other world views, uh, how they would see the solve for suffering in the world. What do they believe is the fix? So humanists, materialists, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, how do they believe that suffering gets addressed in the world? Christianity is the only worldview, it's the only religion that says God is fixing it. Christianity is the only worldview, it's the only religion that doesn't say you got to fix it. You're going to fix it. Run faster, jump higher, try harder, be more moral. Christianity is the only worldview that said God entered our suffering through Christ, born as miraculously to a virgin. God came in the flesh, the incarnation. He lived a sinless life, offered his life on the cross as an atonement for the sins we've made, and then was raised from the grave. Christianity is unique. There's no other story like it. He's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So don't think that it's our strange behavior that sets us apart. The strangeness about us is we think another man, Christ, God in the flesh, has done it for us and is doing it for us. Is the gospel washing over us? Isn't that good news? Which isn't permission to go live like hell because God has secured heaven for us through faith in Christ. Not in the least. It's actually fuel to honor God with our lives because of what God's done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. The invitation is to believe. Here's Jesus' own words about the matter. John chapter 6, they asked him, him being Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? What I got to do to get to heaven? What I got to do to be saved? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This is vitally important. There's no command in the Bible to be strange. The command in the Bible is to believe, and that's going to make you strange. It'll make you feel like a foreigner swimming against this current you've never expressed a belief in Jesus and you have the desire welling up within you, then express your desire to him. You can do that right where you're seated. 
you could say something like, God, I thank you for doing for me what I can't do for myself, sending Christ to die and be raised, to address the sin in my life and save me from suffering in the world. Which doesn't mean this world's going to be easy. It means that your eternity is secure. And that the barrier of sin has been removed between you and God so that you can be in relationship with him. You can have that discussion right where you're at in the seats there. Talk to God like you'd talk to your best friend. Just express, you might say something as simple as, I'm ready to be a, a foreigner in this world. I'm ready to be a stranger in this world. I'm ready to look towards a heavenly home and not live for the here and now. Scripture tells us if you express those types of desires that he's saving you, you're being saved. In fact, the truth is no one expresses those desires apart from the work of the Spirit in their lives. He draws us. He gives us the faith to believe. We don't draw ourselves. He draws us. So it's, it's not, though, just that we don't like being strange and sticking out. We also don't like the notion of being foreigners. Abraham and Sarah believed, and they behaved strangely. They went to live as foreigners in a far-off land. They picked up from Ur and uh, southern Iraq, and they traveled uh, north about 1,000 miles uh, to Canaan, the promised land. And they lived in tents there, not easy to live in tents. So they had homes in Ur, and they, they pick up and they become uh, foreigners in a land that's not theirs. Not only that, they never possessed the land. Their son Isaac, uh, grandson Jacob, great-grandson Joseph never possessed the land, but they stayed there. They stayed there through drought, difficulty. In fact, when Abraham arrived in the promised land, he couldn't stay because the drought was so severe, he had to go on to Egypt. At which point he lied about his relationship to Sarah in order to preserve his own life. He said that, said that his wife is actually his sister, so these folks were not perfect. <laughs> but they did act on faith, clinging to what God had promised to them. You know, to pick up from Ur and travel to Canaan um, was a strange behavior for sure because to, uh, deities in the ancient world were perceived as regional. So to leave Ur, travel a thousand miles to Canaan, was to forsake the deities of your hometown, Ur, and to follow the calling of a deity, Yahweh, is the, uh, the name revealed in the Old Testament of our God. So to be a Yahwist, right, to travel to Canaan, he's adopting a new God, he's following the call of God. He was a pagan idolater before that, and there's great comfort there. God reached him where he was at, revealed himself to Abram, and called him to this new land, and has blessed all the peoples of the world through his descendants, because it's through Abraham that Christ comes, and that we believe today. But it was a risky experience. It made him a foreigner. He lived in tents, when Abraham and Sarah died, they hadn't become possessors of the land. They actually had to buy land in order, Abraham had to buy it to bury Sarah. They didn't own it, but they stayed nonetheless for generations rather than returning to Ur. Look at how the writer of Hebrews describes such people. These people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They had a vision for what God was doing. 
How's our vision today? Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers. Instead, they were longing for a better country. How are we doing accepting our status as foreigners? This world is not our home. Don't grow cozy in it here. How are we doing seeing and welcoming and admitting? What are our affections like? So here are my takeaways. You'd say, how do we apply this? How do we live this out? I've got four little things. It's taken right from Hebrews 13, 14, and 15, and 16 there. As people of faith, let's see all that God has promised us in Christ. Let's see. Let's look backwards and see what God's done to us, uh, for us in Christ, his life and death, resurrection. Let's see forward and see clearly the promises. How's your spiritual eyesight? Are you walking by faith? In Corinthians, Paul draws a distinction between walking by faith and walking by sight. He's saying, don't get fixated on this world and what's going on and the difficulties of this world. Get your head up and look forward to what God's promised us in Christ. A country of our own, a city being prepared for us. Secondly, as people of faith, let's welcome Jesus' person and work from a distance, albeit. Welcoming, in my estimation, simply means um, orienting your life around Christ. You see what God's done for you in Christ in times past, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. You see the promises of the future, and so you welcome Christ. You orient your life around Christ. And so the priorities of your life, your time, your talents, your treasure, you've oriented your life, you've welcomed Christ, and you've built your life around him and the promises that are yours through Christ. You don't orient your life around this world and the priorities of this world. Admit to being a foreigner and stranger. I think it might be a good exercise just to enunciate that. In this world, I'm a foreigner. This world is not my home. I think it'd be good exercise just to say it out loud because all of popular culture presses, presses down on us saying, no, this is your reality. Our reality is far grander and greater than this world alone. Have you admitted to being a stranger, to being strange in this world, to being weird? Are you at ease with the, the cultural current washing by you as you try to resist popular culture? Do you, are you okay with standing out, drawing attention to yourself because you see who who Christ is and you've oriented your life around him that takes a lot admittedly to admit that it's a whole different way of living finally your affections the emotional attachment to what God's promised you are you what are your what are you longing for and it, I'll give you some examples. So many of us are, are longing for a new car, understandably, right? Or uh, an addition on our home, or a new home, or a, a big vacation. Not bad in themselves. But if they trump our longing for Christ, a country that, in a city that he's building for us, what, what provokes or what gives you an emotional response what are, you, what are your affections set upon? 
and clearly, scripturally, our affection should be set upon Christ and the home he's preparing for us. The longing to see him again, his return, it should move us. That's why worship, some of you will will understand this, you know, you get into worship setting like this and there's singing and there's the ministry of God's word and the people of God are gathered together and, and you may feel tears well up because you see more clearly your hope is Christ, your hope's not what's going on in this world, the suffering that's here and the fairly shallow goals that the world says are to be our goals. So there should be an emotional response. It may not lead us, but there's a longing for the city that he's preparing for us. In just a minute, we're going to close our service, as is our habit. We're going to sing some songs in response. We're going to preach to each other again in song. Um, Simone and Anthony Halpin will be down front. They're eager to pray with folks. You, You might come for prayer if for the first time it's making sense to you that that God has done for you what you can't do for yourself. And you, you just want help praying through a prayer of orienting your life around Christ. They'd love to do that. Or maybe you're having trouble seeing clearly what Christ has done for you. Maybe your vision is blurred, your spiritual vision, and you want help with that. Maybe the suffering in this world is overwhelming you. Or maybe you, you want the affections to be impacted more deeply. You want your affections to be set on Christ and his kingdom. I'd encourage you to come forward for prayer for that. Any number of things. Let me pray for us now. Father, we know that faith in Christ is both a historic reality. We're setting our focus on what's past, but we're also setting our focus on what's to come. We thank you for the city that you're building for us the place of perfect peace and rest and restoration. Even now, would you remove the barriers to our seeing Christ more clearly? I pray that faith would rise up in our lives and that you would increase our faith in your Son, that we would welcome Him, orient our lives around Him, admit, live at peace with the reality that in this world we're foreigners, strangers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.